Today's point of care podcast is on neutropenic fever in the inpatient setting. Neutropenic fever is defined as a temperature above 100.4 with an ANC less than 500 or expectation that the ANC will be less than 500 within 48 hours. You calculate the ANC by multiplying white blood cells by the percent of neutrophils on the diff. Functional neutropenia is when the ANC is greater than 500, but the PMNs are defective, often in leukemia, though this is a controversial definition. When you're admitting someone with neutropenic fever, let's go through a checklist. First is always the ABCs. Does the patient have severe sepsis that's requiring pressors and ICU care or respiratory failure? When you do your chart check, look for the outpatient oncologist, the cancer type they have, the last treatment and the date they got it, the last known white blood cell and ANC, any previous microdata including susceptibilities and multidrug resistant organisms, any recent antibiotic use including prophylactic antibiotics, and recent healthcare exposures as well as indwelling lines. For admission criteria, you can calculate the MASCC score or MASC score for risk stratification, and we'll talk about that more later. When you see the patient and you're doing the HPI for your intake, ask them about the timing of their fevers at home and their Tmax, whether or not they have any sick contacts, about their indwelling lines, localizing symptoms including shortness of breath, cough, rhinorrhea, congestion, abdominal pain, diarrhea, dysuria, urinary frequency, CVA tenderness, wounds, rashes, ulcers, or headaches, and any travel or animal exposure that they might have. Things that you absolutely can't miss when someone comes in with neutropenic fever is severe sepsis and bacteremia. When you're placing your initial admission orders, certainly get a CBC with diff daily to know what the ANC is. Make sure you get blood cultures at two or more sites and always include a central line if there is one. Get a UA and a urine culture, a sputum culture if in the appropriate setting, an RVP, especially in the certain times of year where viruses are going around, procalcitonin if you're worried about bacterial pneumonia, an ABG or BBG if, they're pulmonary, if you're concerned about a pulmonary source, lactate if you're concerned about sepsis, an EKG, a CMV, PCR if it's a bone marrow transplant patient, chest x-ray always, and then a CT chest if you're really worried about pulmonary symptoms. And if they're having diarrhea, you can consider getting uh, stool studies, stool cultures, O&P, and a C. diff. If you're worried about PJP, you can send an LDA to a beta deep blue can. An initial treatment you have to do is giving fluids and antibiotics. Cefepime will be the most common, as we'll talk about, but you'll give meropenem if there's a history of multidrug-resistant organisms, and vancomycin if the patient is septic, or you're concerned for a line infection, or the patient has severe mucositis. When you've collected all this information, and you're forming your assessment, you'll be taking account their history, their previous infections, the fever timing, sick contacts, and recent travel. Their clinical, do they look sick or not sick? Are they short of breath? Do they have a cough, rhinorrhea, all those things that we talked about that might tell you about the localizing infection. On your physical exam, Think about a pulmonary source, look for crackles and ronchi, an abdominal source, looking for pain or distension, urinary source, altered mental status, cloudy urine or CVA tenderness, skin and soft tissue infection, edema, erythema, and warmth, or any indwelling lines such as tenderness or erythema over the site of insertion. Look for mucositis on their exam, and if you're worried about endocarditis, think about murmurs, Janeway lesions, or splinter hemorrhages. When you're thinking about the etiology of differential diagnosis, we'll talk about this in more depth, but essentially it's bacterial infection, viral infection, fungal infection, but also other things that aren't infections, including transfusion reactions, engraftment, differentiation, graft-versus-host disease, TLS, drug fevers, thrombophobitis, and hematomas. So for bacterial infections, when you have a framework, GNRs are what you should be most worried about because they can make patients sick very rapidly, and you have to cover for pseudomonas, and also be thinking in the back of your mind whether there might be an extended beta-lactamase-producing organisms where you might need meropenem. For GPCs, you have to cover for MRSA, and you should be considering whether or not you need to cover for VRE based on the patient's history and their presentation, and just how sick they are. For viral infections, you need to be thinking about the common respiratory viruses that are seen on your RVP, especially during the winter months when patients are getting very sick with viruses. 
Also be on the lookout for COVID, which most patients are screened for to begin with, as well as CMV in those with a history of bone marrow transplant. For fungal infections, you need to be thinking about Canada, especially if the patient is on TPN, PJP if they have a hemolignancy, if they're a transplant patient, or if they have long-term steroid use and present with hypoxemia. And you should also be thinking about aspergillus, especially if you see anything concerning on imaging. But the most important things of, that are non-infectious you should be thinking about in your framework include drug fever, thrombophobitis, and a transfusion reaction. In terms of your workup, you should be following up your blood cultures, your urinalysis and urine cultures, any other cultures you said, like sputum culture, an RVP and a procalcitonin if you're concerned for bacterial pneumonia to help differentiate sometimes between them. You can send fungal markers like LDH, beta-D-glucan, and galactamanin if you have imaging concerns for nodules that are concerning for aspergillus, or if you have ground glass opacities concerning for PJP. And again, if you're having diarrhea, send stool cultures, O&P, and C. diff. If imaging is concerning for an atypical infection, it might actually be beneficial for you to get a BAL with iPOM to get better samples. And again, always get your daily CBC with a diff to check for the ANC. In terms of treatment, note how much fluid was already given in the ED and how much you should be giving them more based on your exam. Oxygen status, noting how much they're currently on as well as what your goal is. For most patients, it'll be at least over 92%. And then antibiotics. Again, empirically, most patients that come in with neutropenic fever are going to get empiric cefepime, 2 grams Q8. We can also give those in 4.5 grams Q6. If you're concerned about extended spectrum beta-lactamase-producing organisms, you give them meropenem, 1 gram Q8. But if you end up deciding that this is a patient who we can either go in the outpatient setting quickly, you can also do PO options, including ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin. GPC coverage with vancomycin, if you're concerned about severe sepsis, a bloodstream infection associated with a catheter, or there's bad mucositis on exam, or if there's a very obvious skin and soft tissue infection that you've localized. You can also consider going to linazolid or daptomycin if there's a history of VRE, and can add metronidazole if there's a history of intra-abdominal infections or the patient, again, has severe oral ulcers. Once you've actually diagnosed the patient on cultures or with a specific infection, you can narrow appropriately. Otherwise, if you don't, uh, until they essentially become non-neutropenic anymore, they'll probably have to switch to a PO antibiotics and cleave lulofloxacin until they're no longer neutropenic. You can consider adding fungal coverage with voriconazole or posiconazole if they're fevering despite treatment for four to seven days, or if there's any evidence of positive fungal markers. Use fluke if you have grown susceptible candida in your cultures, but don't just give it empirically because it actually does not cover endemic mycoses or aspergillus. So favor in those situations where you're not sure and the patient's very sick, voriconazole or posiconazole. And of course, always be giving supportive care with Tylenol for fevers, analgesia as they need it, antiemetics, and neutropenic precautions, although we'll talk about how that might not be something that we need to do anymore. And then you can pull the indwelling line if blood cultures show Staph aureus, Pseudomonas, fungi, or you have any concern for endocarditis and no source control. Some pearls to consider. Only 30% of cases of neutropenic fever actually ever identify an infectious source. Of those that do, 40% are GNRs, but 60% are GPCs, and those are commonly come from lines and mucositis. And so you need to treat for possible pseudomonas empirically since GNRs can make patients very sick very quickly. But overall, if you do find an infectious source, it's actually more likely to be GPCs. Fungal infections are more likely when you have prolonged ANC less than 500. You've used antibiotics previously, or you're using TPN. When you're talking about the MASCC risk index score, the mask risk index score, you can use this to identify low-risk patients. And this is somebody who's going to have a score over 21. And they might be patients that are able to go home on PO antibiotics or can be treated in the outpatient setting. And this is based on symptom severity, hypotension, active COPD, a solid versus liquid tumor, prior fungal infections, and dehydration requiring IV fluid, and whether or not the fever started inpatient or outpatient. Each of those have different points associated with them, 
but a higher score means the patient is less sick. And so if the score is over 21, with the highest score being 26, you can probably treat them in the outpatient setting. The differential for fevers, despite antibiotics, includes you have the wrong bug, meaning it might be virus, fungal, atypical, the wrong drug, that you're not, you know what the bug is, but you're just not appropriately covering for it, the wrong process, meaning it's not infection, you don't have source control, such as abscesses, endocarditis, or indwelling line that you haven't pulled, or you've just not been treating for enough time. So always be thinking about those. Wrong bug, wrong drug, wrong process, no source control, or not enough time. Also, never do a DRE on patients with neutropenic fevers, because it can lead to translocation of your intestinal bacteria, especially GNRs, which can make patients sick very quickly. If you're worried about MRSA pneumonia, daptomycin is inactivated by surfactant, so it's not useful for pulmonary infections, and so it's best saved if you have a concern for VRE. Patients at a high risk of neutropenic fever can benefit from granulocyte colony stimulating factors, or GCSFs. You usually prophylax with fluoroquinolones after you finish your inpatient antibiotic course until your ANC is over 500, especially in high-risk hemolignancy patients. For fungal infections, again, fluconazole does not cover endemic fungi or aspergillus, so voriconazole or posiconazole is preferred for empiric coverage for possible disseminated fungal infections, especially if the patient's immunocompromised. When you get a CT chest, there's a very high negative predictive value for PJP if you do not have the characteristic GGOs. In that case, it's very unlikely you have PJP. A CD4 less than 200 or steroids of at least 20 of prea a day for two to four weeks is usually enough to be at risk for PJP. Someone who's chronically on steroids is at risk for getting PJP up to three to six months after being tapered. The 1,3-beta-D-glucan is a cell wall polysaccharide unique to fungi, and this is something that's seen in PJP, aspergillus, candida, histoplasma, coccidioides, blastomyces, cryptococcus, and rhizopus. So it's sensitive for fungal infection, but not at all specific for any one fungal infection, including PJP. It should just raise a concern for a fungal infection in general if you have it. Antifungal prophylaxis with an azole or an echinocandin during neutropenia and 75 days after receiving a bone marrow transplant is pretty standard. And you can also get trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or Bactrim as the recommended treatment for patients receiving chemo regimens that are associated with greater than a 3.5% risk for pneumonia for PJP. Some trials in literature that we'll link off to, including the neutropenic diet. It does not actually prevent infections, improve mortality, or change stool microbiota in patients who are receiving inpatient induction therapy for acute leukemia. Major infections occurred in 32 or 32% of patients in the regular diet arm, and 26 or 25% of patients in the neutropenic diet arm, with a p-value of 0.26. So that might be something that we're doing away with soon, because that was just published in the BMJ in 2022 this year. We'll also link off to reviews for optimal management of neutropenic fever in patients with cancer, which is in uh, Journal of Oncology Practice from 2019. Other resources, as always, is the Curbsiders episode on neutropenic fever, which is excellent. So if you remember absolutely nothing else from this episode, just remember this. If patient fevers with an ANC less than 500 or a high likelihood they'll have an ANC less than 500 within 48 hours, they should get antibiotics. Most patients will be treated inpatient, but the MASCC or Mask Risk Index Score can help identify healthy patients that can be treated at home. Most patients never have an identifiable source of infection as a cause of their fevers. Though we empirically treat with Cefepime to cover for GNRs, and patients who do have identifiable bacterial infections, they're more likely to have a GPC. Consider fungal infections or MDROs in those with severe sepsis, CT imaging with GGOs or nodules, and those who fever for four to seven days despite adequate antibiotic therapy. Treating prolonged neutropenic fevers can be very puzzling. Remember the differential for persistent fevers. Wrong bug, wrong drug, wrong process, no source control, or not enough time. Most patients with neutropenic fever will fully recover. 
However, due to immunosuppressed state, some patients go on to develop severe sepsis and the mortality in those populations is unfortunately extremely high. Well, that's all for this episode. Check out pointofcaremedicine.com to see the templates we discussed, as well as the pearls, literature, and links to other resources.